worshiping, I, I kind of felt like, I don't know if it's from the Lord or not, but I kind of felt like I saw Jesus trying to lead a flock, but he was kind of doing it from behind and he had his arms outstretched and he was trying to kind of like hold us all together and kind of just very gently kind of push us in the direction he was trying to take us. And um, there were a few people that were just being super resistant, a few sheep that were being super resistant. Um, and I felt like the Lord might have said that that's not a maturity issue, that's a woundedness issue, and that somebody has like a wound of like the heart or the soul that needs healed. And so, Father, I just, I just pray over my spiritual family this morning. And Lord, where there is a wound of the heart, where there is a hope deferred that has made the heart sick, where there has been a trauma, where there is unforgiveness that is just leading to such bitterness, Lord, we pray healing. Um, Lord, you are here. You are touching every heart. You are healing every heart, even in ways that like we are uncomfortable with or don't like or don't want. That's what you're doing. And so, Holy Spirit, um, even as we open scripture today and we look at the ways that you want to strengthen us, Lord, would you bring strength to the weary this morning? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. If you have your Bible, it's a holiday. Check, check. Oh, okay. Hi. Okay, if you got a Bible, you can meet me in Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. And while you're flipping there or opening your phone and doing all that, uh, just to let you know, we grew by two this week. Our church did. So uh, the Bylers welcomed their daughter, Zaya Marie yesterday so that's exciting and then jamie cross welcomed her son jackson james monday or tuesday i think it might have been monday so uh yeah that's exciting so cool beans lots of babies that's always fun um we're in acts 14 together i was walking out my front door this morning and there's a a, a pot of flowers that we have planted and i thought Ooh, it needs a little bit of love. It needs some strength. It looked a little sad. Um, we were at the beach last weekend, by the way. Thanks for, thanks to Holden and the team for holding down the fort. Hi. I never heard about Holden holding down the fort and the team. So there you go. The, uh, we were in Michigan with dear friends. Some of you have met Bob and Pam McRae. They've done some marriage conferences for us before. Uh, she's preached before, so just become dear friends. So we were hanging out with them, and so we took Jack to the beach, and he's growing in his confidence, which I'm really excited about, said, I want to go in the water. So off he marched, and two steps in, smacked by a wave, <laughs> down on his face, pick him up, hold him up. Jack just needed strengthened. He was fine, just needed strengthened, right? There's uh, some people that I've been working with that have been talking to me about the doctrine of hell. Okay, how can a good and loving God send people to hell for all eternity? They, as we have these conversations, what I'm hearing is we just need to be strengthened, right? There are these moments uh, in our lives where our, our children, our spiritual children, the people that we're investing in, the ministries that we lead, even whole churches, need strengthening. They need strengthening. 
And this passage in Acts chapter 14, which to be honest, I was inclined to just blow right by this weekend, it's a passage that's all about strengthening. So I want to read it to you this morning. Acts chapter 14, starting in verse 21. Do I need to sneeze? Oh, that's so annoying. It's like right there. Acts 14, starting in verse 21. It says this. After preaching the good news in Derby and making many disciples, Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia, where they strengthened the believers. They encouraged them to continue in the faith, reminding them they must, that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Paul and Barnabas also appointed elders in every church. With prayer and fasting, they turned the elders over to the care of the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. Then they traveled back through Pisidia and to Pamphylia, and they preached the word in Perga and went down to Italia. And if you don't know where these places are, don't sweat it. It's Turkey-ish. Finally, they returned by ship to Antioch of Syria, where they began their journey. The believers there had entrusted them to the grace of God to do the work they had now completed. Upon arriving in Antioch, they called the church together and reported everything God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles too, and they stayed there for a long time. As we've been studying the book of Acts, I, there's these little sections where on the surface it doesn't feel like really anything is happening. It, this feels like a travel itinerary with a few details thrown in, but I'm learning as we're studying the book, it's that these little passages that describe to us kind of the decision-making that Paul and Barnabas engage on, engage in, it's these passages that just give us such a helpful look at what it looks like to follow Jesus and who Jesus wants to be in our lives. I want to kind of run down this a little bit and just talk about then what does it look like for us to be strengthened and what does it look like for us to do the strengthening in our kids, and our spiritual kids, and our ministries, and our church, what, is that, what does that look like? So remember in Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas, by the way, notice something has shifted. Barnabas and Paul has started to become Paul and Barnabas, right? It takes a lot of maturity on Barnabas's part to start to go second, doesn't it, right? Barnabas mentored Paul, Right? When Barnabas showed up in Jerusalem, I didn't plan on telling you this, Barnabas shows up in Jerusalem, Paul shows up in Jerusalem, and everybody's like, um, are you the same Paul that kills people? And Barnabas is like, time out, guys, I think there's something legit here. And so Barnabas mentors uh, Paul, and, and if you look at the early parts of Acts 13, it says Barnabas and Paul did this, and Barnabas and Paul did this, and then all of a sudden, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, a lot of humility on Barnabas's part, I think. So they left the city called Antioch, which is in Syria. It's there uh, north of Israel, north of modern Israel, Palestine. They head out from their home base. They preach the gospel in cities throughout the Mediterranean. So they go to Cyprus. They go to another city called Antioch, Pisidian Antioch. They go to Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. And in all these places they're going, they're preaching the gospel, and, and they're making disciples, and they're setting up Jesus communities. They're setting up churches. In Acts 14 21 it tells us that Derby, their ministry there was particularly fruitful. It says they made many disciples there and so they leave Derby and start toward home, start toward Syrian Antioch. But when they do that trip they decide to take a particular route 
and the particular route is to go back through all of the cities and towns that they had been in on the way. So they, they kind of do a, a journey back through all their, those places that they've set up these Jesus communities. They've started all these churches. So they go back. Why are they going back? They're going back through these churches and these communities they've gone through to strengthen the churches and, and believers that are there. It turns out that these churches Paul had started needed strengthening. They needed ongoing support. They needed encouragement. Churches aren't clocks. You don't just go and wind it up and walk away. They're, they're more like gardens. They need tending. They need care. They need supervision. They need nurture. Churches are like this because as seasons change, the challenges in front of us change. Churches need strengthening and encouraging to meet those challenges in real time. But the same is true for the ministries that we are a part of. The ministries that we, we lead, they need strengthening from time to time. Our team needs support, needs encouragement. And it's true of the people that we're investing in, that we're discipling. Whether a kid or a student or an adult or a peer or a friend at work, they need encouragement. They need support. Our kids need this. Our biological kids need this. And so Paul goes to these churches, even this church that sent him, Syrian Antioch. And he goes with an eye to encourage and strengthen them. And he strengthened them, Luke tells us, in four ways. He offers them encouragement to continue in the faith. He reminds them that suffering is a part of following Jesus. He multiplies leaders unless you abide in me. Paul's encouragement to continue in the faith to these churches, it speaks not only to the, the body of teachings that he has laid down for them, but it also speaks to the intimacy with Jesus that he has taught them to live into. It is both. Right? I tend to find people that love theology aren't all that good at intimacy. There's a lot of people that are really good at intimacy with Jesus, not that good at theology. And look at what continuing in the faith means. It means to do both. He's calling the church into a biblical theological rootedness and an abiding intimacy with Jesus. They're overlapping. And so to strengthen our disciples and ministries, we need to encourage them. We need to come alongside of them. And notice, by the way, it's that when it comes to teaching about the faith, Paul specifically encourages. He doesn't rebuke. He doesn't say, how could you possibly believe that, you stupid person? Right? He does that in Galatians, but that's for a different reason. Um, uh, Paul starts with invitation. He encourages these new believers to hold fast and to grow in intimacy with Jesus. I think sometimes our tendency with our new disciples or our ministries is when we sense some drift, when we sense an apathy towards spiritual things, or, or we, we see a doctrinal drift, right? It, does hell really matter? What about sexuality? When we see this drift, our tendency is to want to rebuke, isn't it? To like bear down and yank them back. But Paul says that the strengthening we need to give when doctrinal drift and when spiritual apathy is there, it's encouragement. It's encouragement. 
maybe engaging more spiritual more in more spiritual depth with the people you're discipling or in the ministry you lead the group you're a part of is just engaging a more time in prayer maybe if there's some doctrinal drift it's coming alongside and saying hey let's read this book together here's a podcast let's talk about it it's encouragement it's not rebuke so the first way that paul strengthens the church is he encourages them to continue in the faith the second thing he does is he reminds them that suffering is a necessary part of following Jesus. Depending on what translation you have in front of you, I'm, I'm reading NLT, the English Standard, New International. What they do is they put this in quotes. So either it's an approximation of what Paul says or exactly a quote, but Paul says that we must, it tells the churches that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. We must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. The doorway to the kingdom is constructed in part with suffering. Now, Paul, what Paul may have in mind here is maybe some specific persecution that is either beginning or about to begin. But I think it's also a good reminder that even the hard things that we experience in this life the miscarriage, the divorce, the broken friendship, the broken marriage, the broken relationship, the, the physical, the, the emotional, the mental, all of these things, they're not a distraction from the kingdom. They're not a dragging away from the kingdom. They're a part of the way in which we experience God's kingdom. I mean, Paul himself says uh, in 2 Corinthians 6, 5, he says, we have been beaten We've been put in prison. We've faced angry mobs. We've worked to exhaustion. We've endured sleepless nights. We have gone without food. In Acts chapter 14, verse 9, Paul is beaten to death and left outside the city gates, just assuming that he'll be gone. Paul also says in Romans 5 that suffering is used by God to form in us character. It has a refining possibility, not a defining, but a refining possibility for us. Suffering is a necessary part of following Jesus. And I can't think of something more countercultural to this moment than that because ours is a culture about minimizing pain, minimizing suffering, increasing comfort, increasing painlessness, and yet to follow Jesus, to follow Jesus means that we will suffer. One commentator says, it is almost taken for granted throughout the New Testament that tribulation, suffering, is the normal lot of the Christians in this age. It is those who suffer for and with Christ now who will share his glory. As the saying goes, no cross, no crown. Luke indeed records the irresistible progress of the gospel, but he does so without triumph. Instead, another commentator says that Luke makes it clear that the road his heroes were traveling is the way of the cross. That the road his heroes are traveling is the way of the cross. I need to regularly remind you that suffering is part of following Jesus. Not to bum you out. Not to steal your joy. 
not to kind of get you into this ho-hum, sad sort of Christianity, but to remind you that when, not if, when suffering comes, it is a normal part of following Jesus. Because otherwise what we tend to do is we think, well, now that I'm following Jesus, how could this bad thing happen to me? His job is to protect me. His jo- and, and there's an element in which that's true, but we're invited into this mystery where God uses the suffering in our lives to refine us and to shape us and so that we enter the kingdom of God as the people that he wants us to be. I have to remind you regularly because if I don't, you have to remind the people that you're ministering to, the people that you're investing in, you have to remind those people regularly because if you don't, the enemy will get in there and use that suffering as a, as a seedbed for lies. Well, if this is happening to you, God must not love you. If that thing in your past happened to you, then God must not be real. The enemy will use the suffering in our life and the lives of those who are discipling to, to sow lies about the character of God. And so we have to, this is why Paul's strengthening the church. It doesn't feel like this is a good way of strengthening Paul. Like it doesn't sound like a good church growth tactic to go back to the church that you just started that's really growing and saying, hey, by the way, this is going to really be hard, <laughs> right? But he knows that it's strengthening them by preparing them. It's strengthening them by preparing them. The best gift that we give our children in this life is to let them know that hard things are going to happen to them, but to invest in them the resilience to kind of bounce through that. And that's been the big thing that we've prayed over Jack. Um, we've, we came up with an acronym, Steph came up with an acronym for his name, four things that we pray over him. And we couldn't really get the word resilience into the name Jack. So we went with emotional agility for A. Um, <laughs> Because we want him to have a bounce backness, right, that comes from trusting the Lord. Now, then Paul does a really interesting thing to strengthen the church, too. Did you notice this, that he multiplies leaders? Verse 23 Paul and Barnabas also appointed elders in every church. And with prayer and fasting, they turned the elders over to the care of the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Paul recognizes that he can't be everywhere all the time. And so he recognizes that if the Jesus movement is going to multiply and if the church is going to grow and thrive, it needs more leaders. And this is the difference, by the way, between institutional thinking and movemental thinking. Institutional thinking puts, uh, creates kind of this triangle where the leader is at the top, or it's actually flipped upside down, and the leader's at the bottom, and then the leader is holding all of the weight. And so the pastor is supposed to be at every event. The pastor is supposed to lead every group. The pastor is supposed to do everything. And, and, and what that does is it creates, first of all, a really unhealthy spiritual dependence, which we'll get back to in a minute. But the second thing it does is it limits the growth of the church. Right? institutions reward institutions kind of put everything on the hero on the on the hero and the shoulders of the leader but movements do this thing where they reward leaders who work themselves out of a job movements reward leaders that work themselves out of a job how do they do that by multiplying other leaders by raising up other leaders to step into those roles and so here's what is so surprising look at how paul chooses to strengthen the church. Paul strengthens the church by handing it off to somebody else. 
one of the ways that we strengthen ministries that we lead, one of the ways that we uh, strengthen the disciples, the people that we're investing in, is with our absence. It's with our absence. Developmentally, I know that it is really important for Jack to spend time away from us. I know that. I know that developmentally it is really important to give Jack to a sitter for an evening and, and, and just to kind of do our own thing. Sometimes that's really easy, right? If you're a parent in the room, you know this. This is, well, yeah, please, please take them. Let me, right? Um, but even a few weeks ago, somebody took Jack to the zoo all day. Like we were without him from like eight to five and we were both a little like, oh, I don't. Right? And, but developmentally, it's really important for Jack to learn that he doesn't need us to be present to him all the time for him to be okay, that he can find inside of himself some sort of resource to kind of stabilize and be okay. It's kind of a similar principle going on here with offering our ministry's absence and handing them off to somebody else. Uh, in the Old Testament law, I think it's in the book of Numbers, it essentially says that priests, that the priests in the tabernacle would serve for 25 years, until they, from 25 until, from age 25 till age 50. And then when they hit 50, they said, peace out, I'm going to the ocean and having some lobster. No. What they do is that the priests that are 50 or over hand the ministry to the priests that are under 50, and then they take on this kind of coaching, mentoring position, right? So it's, it's not that the priests aren't in ministry anymore, it's that their ministry has changed from being the one slashing the bull's throat and dealing with the blood and the gore and handling the people to coaching the people that are doing that. There's this principle within scripture that has to do with handing over ministries. And the reason that, the reason that we don't do this, do you know why we don't do this? It's found in this verse 23. It says, they turned the elders over to the care of the Lord. And I would add the ministry. They turned it over to the care of the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Leaders struggle to handle ministries over. Leaders, leaders struggle to step back from a ministry they've been engaged with for years. For this reason, they don't trust the Lord. They don't trust that the Lord has... I mean, Paul and Barnabas have to trust that the Lord has the back of these new elders because Paul can't be there all the time. When I deploy somebody to lead a small group and I'm not there, I have to trust that the Lord has to, is going to have their back and that when something happens, I'm not going to be there to intervene and that everything's going to be okay. And you know what I have learned? It always, always is. It always, always is. There's a handing off. It's bizarre, isn't it? That our ministries are made stronger when we hand them off. It lets us do the things the Lord is calling us to do. It lets them do what the Lord is calling them to do. But it's an exercise in trust. That we have to trust, learn to trust, that the Lord's going to have their back. In the same way that I need to trust that not only is the awesome set of babysitters that we have for Jack going to take care of Jack, but that the Lord is involved too. One day Jack's going to go to college or trade school or camp for a week, right? And I'm going to have to trust that the Lord has his back and a big blue-eyed cheerleader type isn't flirting with him. You know what I'm saying? Before I'm ready. And, um, and so uh, I, I think that there's this, this exercise in trust that's needed. 
And the way that we step into that is through what Henry Nowlin calls a ministry of absence. A ministry of absence. He's got a little book, Henry Nowlin, called The, the Living Reminder. And he says, we ministers, I'm just going to change it to we leaders, may have become so available that there is too much presence and too little absence. He says, there's too much of us and too little of God and his spirit. He says that the instinctive urge for our disciples or the people that we lead or our church members to call us to their side it obscures the reality that they are actually uncomfortable being alone with God. It's like even the air conditioning is listening very closely now. <laughs> he says, Our physical presence provides a comfortable alternative to interactions with God, whose touch and voice are far less tangible. Sometimes in the people that we lead, I mean, heck, even in our kids' lives, we're so present to them that there's no room for God to speak. We're so over-involved, there's no room for God to move because we're all fully present. And so Paul tells us in, in, in Acts 14 that one of the ways that he strengthens the church is not only with his presence, but also with his absence, because in his absence and by handing it off to other leaders, what he is able to do in that moment is it gives freedom for God's spirit to work, it gets other leaders involved, and the movement grows. I can remember my grandmother telling me a story about a pastor she knew. She was in charge of the cookie and coffee fellowship after church that Sunday. Um, and so she was setting out the cookies and the coffee, and the pastor came behind her and um, was, like, rearranging how she'd done it. And my grandmother looked at him and said, either I'm doing this or you're doing this. You just need to choose. <laughs> right? Guy needed to learn how to engage in some creative absence. You know what I'm talking about? Just leave it. Sometimes our ministry needs uh, to hand off, to be handed off. This is a personal, I think this is maybe a more frame way of thinking about it. It's time to hand our ministry off when we are striving and no longer operating on grace. Like when the very thought of serving in that area of ministry makes you tired or stressed or it's evoking in you like a grumpiness or frankly a need for control, it's time to let go. It's time to let go. It's time to let somebody else step in because you're striving. You're not, you're not being fueled on grace anymore. Um, and I think sometimes what we don't recognize in our resistance to hand ministries off to other people that we're actually holding back what God is trying to do in somebody else's life because they have a call on their life to step into some area of ministry, but because we have made ourselves so present in that ministry, there's no room for us. And so we step out and somebody can move in. Sometimes, can I, can I be honest with you what this looks like? If I'm on vacation, if I'm out of town, unless you are bleeding, dying, or on fire, I pretend like I don't even know who you are anymore. Why? Not because I don't love you. I love you dearly. But I check the desire. Bob and Pam last week kept joking with us on Sunday morning. Like we looked at our phones once. They go, oh, are you guys checking? No, we're fine. We trust them. 
Besides, we're in Michigan, they're in Ohio. Something's going wrong. We can't fix it from here. Um, and uh, the reason I do that is not, I hope, out of a selfish desire to be away from you, but for there to be some creative absence by which God works through other leaders to move our movement along, yeah? And also because when I'm on vacation, I like to nap. Anyway. So there's three, those three ways, and then there's a fourth. There's a fourth way that Paul strengthens the church. Now, and the church that he strengthens, it's interesting. It's actually a church that probably has more maturity to it than these other churches. It's the church in Antioch of Syria. It's the church that sent them off, all of these kinds of stuff. It says they returned to the ship in verse 26. They returned by ship to Antioch of Syria, where their journey had begun. The leaders there had entrusted them to the grace of God to do the work they had completed. And upon arriving in Antioch, they called the church together and reported everything God had done through them and how he opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, too. And they stayed there with the believers for a long time. Here's how they strengthen the church. They strengthen the church with stories of what God is doing. Because we get into running churches and getting the ministries going and doing this and na nailing that down and staying on top of this and making sure we're communicating that. And all of a sudden, we kind of forget, like, this thing is about what Jesus is doing in and through us in our midst. And so what they do is they stop and they share some testimonies of what God is doing to be an encouragement. Uh, Revelation 12 says, and they have conquered him. Him is the enemy. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, for they loved not even their lives unto death. Our testimony is a weapon that pushes back the powers of darkness and increases our faith and confidence in what is, God is doing. And so um, I'm gonna, here's a, here's a mini testimony. I'm going to take a step of faith today and I'm going to ask if someone has a testimony and if they would be willing to come up here and put a microphone in their face and share it with us for two or three minutes. Or Steph is saying they could, she could even bring the mic to you. So I almost, let me just, while somebody's having a panic attack right now, um, I almost kind of called ahead and like set something up and so-and-so can share testimony. And then I was like, let's just see what happens. Well, that's the Lord. So does someone have a, I'm gonna give you some boundaries it's got to be two or three minutes, right? If you start preaching a sermon, Steph will just like gently put her hand on your back and that's code for okay. <laughs> right? Right? Um, two or three minutes. It's not a prayer request. It's something that God has done in your life, something that you have seen God do. And, it, and here's the other rule. It needs to be fresh. I don't want this thing that God did 20 years. What is, what is like the seven-day minimum, seven-day maximum? What has God done in your life in the last seven days? Who has a testimony? Kyla has one. Add a girl, thank you. <laughs> that was, that was, a, that was a, just so you know, that was an exercise in faith for me because I was like, I don't want to stand up there, Lord. Yeah, that's good. You're, you're welcome. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, I guess the testimony for me is we've been praying through infertility and also a friend who's been struggling for the last year and a half has been praying for infertility for her and her husband and I just got a call from her after months of praying for them and they are actually pregnant 
and we just pray together, and we're just so thankful that God doesn't only hear us, but he answers, mm-hmm. and um, just that joyous moment of being able to celebrate with her and with Jesus, so, yeah. Amen. Yeah, do that, do that. That was good. Yeah, I heard her. That's great. Thank you. See, that was good. Okay, I can breathe again. That's great. Okay. Sometimes our ministries, like, we get so lost in the details of it, or even us, like, when we're walking with Jesus, we just, we're so in the drudgery of it that we need to be reminded, don't we, that God is doing things in our lives. And so we create space for testimonies in certain, in certain spaces. So Paul goes back to all of these churches and ministries, and he does it to strengthen them. And he offers them encouragement to continue in the faith. He reminds them that suffering is part of following Jesus. He multiplies leaders, and he shares testimonies of what God is doing. But what's so interesting about this, and this is where I'll leave us, and Steph will do response time. What's so interesting is that Paul is really not the subject of this passage. It's actually the Lord. It's actually Jesus. Because Paul encourages them to continue in the faith. Well, whose faith? Not Paul's, the faith of Jesus. To grow in intimacy with him and to listen to things that Jesus has said. He encourages them to suffer. Why? Because that's part of entering the kingdom. Whose kingdom? God's kingdom, right? He entrusts them to the care of the Lord. It's the Lord. And he tells them stories of what God is doing what God is doing, not what they did. Jesus is the subject of this passage. It's Jesus who founded the faith. It's the kingdom of Jesus' Father that he reveals to us. It's his care. It's his doing. And I, I actually think this, we've been saying through the sermon, this is how we strengthen other people. But I actually think this passage is about how Jesus wants to strengthen us. He wants to strengthen us by calling us into a deep rootedness in his presence and to know the things that he said. He, he wants to strengthen us even in our hardships that lead to the kingdom. He wants to strengthen us that in the absence of someone we trust that he is more than enough. Hear that. In the absence of someone that you trust, in the moment of loneliness, he is enough. He wants to strengthen us by reminding us of the things that he is doing. So Steph's going to come and lead us in some response time around that, but it's what, it's what Jesus is doing. So the reason that we do response time here at Regen is so that there is opportunity for Jesus to do something, so that we aren't just hearing words and kind of just soaking them in, but that there's something that changes in our lives and the way that we respond. And so... Um, I was thinking like there's so there was so much in the sermon this morning um and i'm just going to read kind of the four points and and my question to you is how is god getting your attention today not um how is god getting your neighbor's attention not who is the person in your life that needed to hear this particular thing but how is god speaking to you this morning and so um was it first of all something about encouraging um, others to continue in their faith is he inviting you to that or is it that you need reminded that suffering is part of the way of Jesus? Um, third, is it that you need to multiply yourself out, that maybe you've grown too comfortable in your role or your role has become your identity and the Father's inviting you to invite someone else there? And then fourth, 
Um, is it that you need to either kind of be seeking out stories of what God is doing, or maybe God's asking you to share your story of what he's doing? And maybe even kind of the invitation is if there's not a story, um, maybe I need to be paying a little more attention to what God is doing in my life. So we're just going to take a moment um, um, invite the Father just to get your attention with one of those and maybe one tangible thing you can do this week about that. So we'll take a moment and the band will play and then I'll pray.
we take pretty seriously our role as leaders at Regen to strengthen you. And so one of the ways that we do that is uh, our leadership team is always available in the Otterbein room to pray for you. And so um, after we take communion, another way that we strengthen, uh, if you need strength today, we'd love to pray with you about anything that the sermon brought up or just something you're bringing into this week. But we come to this table every week. We receive communion. It's, it's a ministry of strengthening to us. Of all the ways that Jesus has called us to himself, it's fascinating to me that Jesus shares a meal with us. And we believe that at this table, it's, it's more than just mere remembrance, but that Jesus comes and he offers us himself to strengthen us with his grace. And so we invite everyone to this table to find strength where they need it. We invite everyone with a pulse to be strengthened by the grace of Jesus. And so um, there'll be, I need, I need two people to help me serve communion this morning. Kai's one and Chris is the other. Oh, oh, oh. Scott, can I, I'm going to choose Scott and Kai. Sorry, Chris. Sorry. We have gluten-free as an act of hospitality to you. Father, we pray that you would pour out your spirit on these gifts of bread and cup, that in the eating and drinking of them, we might be strengthened by your grace, that we might know your presence and be refreshed in every way. Thank you, Jesus, that your life and your death and your resurrection has invited us into your presence where we do find strength and hope that's new every morning. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The table is open. Reason reigns without contention. His power can't be questioned or contained.
July. We'll see you next week.